And it looks like we are live. Welcome to the Startup Tank, the Climate Investor Pitch Show. If this is your first time, thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Matt Ward, founder of Forward VC and our early stage climate accelerator. We call it the Partner in Crime program because, well, climate companies, they need a partner in crime. They need someone who's willing to go to bat and help them get those pilots and that traction to make serious impact. That's what we're focused on here at the Startup Tank, serious impact. And we've got six incredible companies lined up for you guys today. If you've watched the Shark Tank, Dragon's Den, Hoedidot, and we're similar, but we deal with companies, well, companies that make the world better, not companies that want to sell more some more crap, so to speak. Uh, we'll open things up and introduce them in a sec. But before we do, the startup tank, this is brought to you guys by Valbon by Carta. If you haven't checked them out, Valbon's a great system to set up SPVs. Those are special purpose vehicles. You want to make an investment into a startup and you don't have enough uh, people on board, you can pull that money together with an SPV, kind of how we've done it with our syndicate in the past with Forward VC. And what we do uh, post-program with our companies that go through the accelerator, it's a great way to make investments if you're an early stage investor and not uh, not necessarily writing a 100K check. Otherwise, startups generally aren't interested. For more details, forward.vc slash Carta, that's C-A-R-T-A for more details. And to set up, you, know, you should get a discount on setting up an SPV if you let them know that the startup tank sent you. And if this is your first time to the startup tank, you can apply, reach us, et cetera, at thestartuptank.com. We do this every two weeks. We bring on two to three awesome investor panelists. We'll share more in a sec about them and how you can apply and the, the six great companies that we've got on board. And this is all done in partnership with Forward VC, which is, well, our climate accelerator and focusing on investing in companies that move the world forward. For more details, Forward VC, the number forward.vc. And um, yeah, you can find us there and apply. But I want to I want to bring in our other panelists now. I'm going to give them a chance to hop in in a second, share a little bit more about them for some quick context for anyone who hasn't been to one of these before. The Startup Tank, we've got six climate companies from pre-seed to pre-series A, which you can apply at startuptank.com. They'll have five minutes to pitch, followed by about 10 or so minutes of Q&A with our investors. At the end of the night, we'll pick a climate startup of the night, and they'll be awarded with the crowning glory of being awesome and the ideally outreach of investors typically just for some context folks that pitch are getting a decent amount of uh, investor and vc inbound now so you guys are lucky you weren't here a few months ago it's much more appealing for startups and companies and we've got some awesome panelists on board so i've told you a little bit more about me we do pre-seed and seed climate companies at forward.vc in our accelerator program and i would hand things over to stephanie dorsey now with She's going to have to say the name. It's E, e squared it's JD. E JDJ. That's right. Okay. You got it. Uh, so hi, everyone. I'm Stephanie. Um, so our firm is based in New Orleans. Uh, we invest all over globally. Uh, we're focused on early stage food and ag. So really looking across the value chain from production to consumption um, and companies that are really driving the needle when it comes to environmental protection, as well as mitigating climate change and also adaptation as well. Um, in terms of our uh, stage focus, so we're focused on pre-seed to Series A, and uh, typical check size is a 500K to a million. Alan? Hello, and good afternoon or good morning. It's good afternoon for from here. Uh, I'm in Dublin, Ireland, or near Dublin, Ireland. I'm part of Resolve Ventures. We're a new venture fund uh, based in Ireland, uh, operating a, a 50 million fund investing in companies at the 500 to a million level. Um, our focus is, is broadly around climate tech, uh, so we're going to look at things like energy, uh, energy renewables, getting them onto the grid, 
Uh, we'll look a little bit around the technology of food and ag. We'll look a little around the technology of mobility, less less so the the high capex of uh, major equipment pieces, but a lot of focus on the software and the enterprise supports uh, needed to to affect that climate change. We kind of think climate uh, corporates need to be helped to uh, get a get across the the climate line, and we want startups and scale ups to do that with them. Exactly, I think. De- decarbonizing corporate is kind of the big challenge of our era. We either get that right and we're good or we don't get that right. And well, we're, we're not so good. We've got some companies here who are definitely helping, helping corporates and helping with uh, the decarbonization efforts. And for us at forward, we'll basically look at anything that's, I like to say climate economics positive. That means as a company grows and scales, are they positively and proportionally impacting the world and the environment in a, in a good way? If they are, we'll take a look. And if they're just a carbon market or carbon marketplace or carbon accounting software, it's probably not for us. More details at forward.vc. But now I wanna I wanna move things on to kind of the the highlight of tonight. And that's that's not our panelists, that's the awesome companies. We've got a ton of applications that have come in and picked six of the best to feature and showcase for you guys today. And to do that, I would want to kick things over to uh Plastics for Change, a uh, really interesting company. And Andrew here is going to take things away. He's, he's calling in from India. So we decided to give him the first slot because it's real late over there. Plastics for Change, the world's largest fair trade recycled platform. Tell us what you guys are doing, Andrew. And you'll have five hey, minutes. Hey, you'll have five so minutes. I'll give you a one minute warning before you're uh, running out of time. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Matt, and everybody for joining. Plastics for Change is the world's largest source of fair trade recycled plastic. And I have some slides here that I'll take you through um, what we do in a little more detail. So we've recognized that there's a huge environmental problem with over 400 brands uh, making the claim to use 25% recycled plastic by 2025, uh, but none of them are really on track to achieve that goal despite enormous pressure from regulators tax on the use of the fossil fuel-based virgin plastic and the overall audacious challenge of our time of addressing climate change and, and also inequality uh, globally. So the reason why a lot of these brands are failing to meet their recycling goals is because 58% of all the plastic that enters the circular economy globally comes from the informal sector in emerging markets. So there's some 20 million people at the base of these supply chains that are often some of the poorest people in society. And the supply chains are so fragmented and unorganized that as a result, only 2% of all the plastic produced each year is recycled into high quality applications that can replace the use of uh, the virgin-based fossil fuels. So at Plastics for Change, we've developed an ethical sourcing platform that connects those at the base of the supply chain with global brands and manufacturers to ensure a consistent supply of high quality plastic from fair trade supply chains. So we use a variety of different authenticity and trust to the impact that we're creating. We shipped our first container load of plastic in 2018, and now we're working with many of the world's largest brands and manufacturers to provide them and catalyze that transition away from fossil fuels. In a nutshell, how it works is we start by understanding the needs of the brands and manufacturers and then reverse engineer the supply chain to get that material delivered to them on time and full. That means connecting thousands of waste collectors with hundreds of scrap shops 
and setting up the Plastics for Change collection center. And in fact, we now have we now have live we now have live impact uh, dashboards that helps to uh, communicate our message with brands. So it's all about ensuring the right quality, having really meaningful impact on the ground, and then translating that into a strategy to help brands increase market share. And we've been able to demonstrate that with cosmetics. Uh, cosmetics in the cosmetics sector, actually, this product attribute, if you compare the A-B split testing, it increases the market, uh, increases the uh, sales by around 30% because consumers are familiar with the concept of fair trade agriculture, buying a fair trade coffee. And given how personal the plastic pollution crisis is, they're wanting to vote with their wallet and purchase from brands who are taking action. So our core business model, just to summarize, is selling the plastic. We also have a merchandise division where we sell the finished merchandise, like T-shirts, apparel, et cetera, directly uh, to brands. And then plastic credits, similar to carbon credits, but for helping to make it possible to collect some of the harder types to harder uh, recycled plastic. We've completed our fourth consecutive year of growing 3X uh, from our first uh, launch of our first fair trade recycled plastic. It's been an incredible journey. And we're looking to continue the scale up process to connect uh, the, the estimated 20 million waste collectors. Uh, if we can get 5% market share, that'd be amazing to help a million folks at the base of the supply chain get access to these global markets and become the largest recycler globally. One minute warning. Eating, eating away at this $500 billion uh, virgin market share which is this this $500 billion is due to triple in our lifetime and be responsible for over 16% of greenhouse gases as it uses so much car carbon getting this uh, material out of the earth's crust and processed in the polymers. Our existing clients just themselves consume around $3 billion worth of plastics every year. So really our, our, our it's all about increasing the scale and connecting, being the best in the world at serving those at the base of the supply chain and keeping track with the growth of the plastics industry. Our success is all because of our amazing team here in South India. Uh, the, the leadership teams have now all been together for four years and we've accomplished some incredible milestones, proving our product market fit, proving our scalability. We just raised $500,000 as part of the Series A for our expansion into Southeast Asia. And we're looking for other folks to carry on that investment uh, for a $5 million Series A uh, to help us continue our growth, expanding what we're doing uh, to not only in India, but also in Southeast Asia. Thank you. And thank you. Thank you for presenting. Thanks for sharing. Um, incredibly interesting. Let me pull the other panelists in. While I do, just one of the quick questions I'm sure a lot of folks will have. How do you scale something that does seem so intensive operationally and in inherently challenging to scale? Well, there's a couple of things. One is over the last six or seven years, we've developed really solid standard operating procedures and everything's uh, everything's digitalized. Um, and then we've also just launched our first franchisee in South India. So we anticipate that going forward around 50% of the new sub uh, new aggregation centers would be franchisee model so that it allows us to continue our, our, our exponential growth, again, growing 3X for four consecutive years, continuing that pace without getting uh, too dependent on capital and uh, operational complexities. What do you provide to franchisees? Why do they want to be a franchisee? 
So uh, if you're a scrap entrepreneur today, there's a lot of things that our executive team has done over the last seven years, such as developing all the segregation methodologies, developing the marketplaces with brands and manufacturers, leveraging the Plastics for Change brand as the first fair trade verified recycled plastic, um, being able to leverage our app and our technology and overall our whole system for uh, connecting more waste collectors because more waste collectors will want to do business with these scrap entrepreneurs because they also get access not only to fair consistent income opportunities but also a variety of other uh, social uh, impact activities like access to healthcare education financial literacy shelter as well as uh, tapping into the existing social service scheme so it's increasing both the supply and demand side and um, we've had over 350 scrap entrepreneurs apply to be franchisees through our website and it's more so just about going and vetting them. And that's just cold outreach? That is not doing any... I'm, I'm sorry, inbound. In, sorry, inbound, I mean. That's just people signing up through our website. Yeah. yeah. Impressive. I would kick things... Now we're going to launch that and market it a little more. Sorry. And, see, and see what happens. That could be interesting. I'll kick things over to Stephanie. I've got more questions, but would love to hear what the other panelists think. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the great background on your company. Um, and just a little bit about more on the you know customer side. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about your customer acquisition strategy? Yeah, so it's really about really truly understanding the industries, have them reach their recycling goal. What I've recognized is so many of these brands, so many of these manufacturers they don't, they don't actually have a plan. So we, when we connect with them, we, we use our data. We have over 830,000 data points on our platform now. And we say, to reach your recycling goal, we're going to need to have exactly this many waste connector, collectors, this many scrap shops, and this many uh, aggregation and segregation centers. And then we just submit a plan to uh, have them achieve their goal. And so far, all the clients who've started purchasing from us, none of them have ever stopped. And we've been able to take many companies on their journey to achieve their recycling goals uh, uh, across uh, both domestic sales, but also on export sales. Got it. And just one follow-up there. And so how long is that typical sales cycle for you? Depends on the size of the brand. Usually like the big giants, you're looking at anywhere between six months and 12 months for like the, the big, uh, big companies. If it's a smaller manufacturer, some of their decision-making process is a little more lean and we've had conversions in two months. Uh, so it, it, uh, it depends on the org structure primarily. Got it. Thank you. But our, our demand is like, we're sold out. The, even just the demand for traditional recycled plastic as a commodity, the demand is already much higher than the supply. It's more about... Uh, being able to scale our supply capacity. And we've recognized that all the new market share is in the global south, where a country like India, the amount of plastic being consumed every year has doubled in the last five years. Um, so it's very hard to keep up with that in terms of like the, just the size of the pie, how quickly it's growing. Um, and we also anticipate that as the regulations kick in in 2025, as mandatory recycling rates become a thing, as more companies implement this tax on virgin plastic, uh, that a lot of companies would benefit from acquiring a strategic shareholding in plastics for change to gain access to the raw materials, increase their market share while avoiding uh, 
avoiding regulatory uh, compliance fees. Thank you. Are you worried about losing your independence then? Um, no, I'm not. I don't, I don't think so because the more impact that we create, the more it sales, like the more it helps to strengthen the loyalty with the brands and manufacturers. Um, so being able to have a really authentic brand, being able to visualize our impact in real time, the full supply chain transparency is something that ultimately is really good for business because consumers are voting with their wallet and they want to choose not only companies that are using recycled plastic, but using recycled plastic that's creating a social impact and from supply chains that they can trust. And for panelists, you can jump in whenever you want. There is no real order. So can I ask, a, a, uh, thank you for the presentation. Uh, re really interesting, of course. Can I ask about the, the customer side? Do you have a sense as to how much those customers are investing or looking for alternate materials as opposed to recycled plastic materials? Yeah, I think that when it comes to our segments, we have a really good product market fit in uh, fashion, apparel, cosmetics, basically any consumer-facing good. I, I do see the role of alternatives and also just using less plastic or eliminating the use of plastic as being key. Highly support that. But when it comes to our sector of like cosmetics and FMCG, there's not been very much adoption of say like um, a polylac acid or a is the most common bioplastic because it's it's very expensive and then it's also like the life cycle analysis when you really compare it it's also using a lot of resources and then it's also not it's very hard to have the recycling infrastructure to uh, do anything with the polyglactic acid afterwards so we're not seeing the bioplastics gain a lot of market share in our sector where bioplastics have a really good market share or really good niche is in the plastics that are never going to be recycled so things like um uh, little like sachet packs that weigh half a gram and that are economically just extremely challenging to get high recycling rates. That's where I think bioplastics is being rolled out uh, more effectively. Yeah, my, 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 my question was related to like the, the big brands. If I'm a Claire Ola, uh, if I'm a, a fashion cosmetics company, you know, am I investing in, in replacing with paper, uh, recycled paper, cardboard? What am I thinking about in terms of plastics or you know, and I, I want to make sure that it's not a greenwashing uh, piece that they're going to put in 25% recycled plastic into a into a 75% virgin plastic, get the box tick uh, and move on. Um, so I'm trying to understand, is the driver coming from those guys making genuine change or is the driver coming from accessibility of plastic supply in, in the global south that you're processing and you're finding in your market for? Yeah, the demand is, is much higher than the supply globally. And then... The $500 billion uh, virgin plastics industry today is supposed to triple. Uh, um, so it's just ludicrous how much plastic the world's consuming. And we want to just help transition as much of that market away from the virgin plastic to the recycled plastic. Um, and ideally, we, we launch SKUs at 100% PCR. Uh, sometimes the company's in a scale-up period where we start at, like with the body shop, we started at a smaller amount and then worked our way up. 100% over time. But it's about having that mutual action plan and executing. So the supply uh, is much, much greater than the demand. Uh, so how are you finding pricing uh, pricing competitiveness? No, the demand is much higher than the supply. 
that's why all these brands are failing to meet their recycling goals. That, that, sorry, that, that's what it means. So are you finding positive wins for you? Are you able to push the price up? Uh, are you not? Where are the brands giving you pushback? When does demand run out of price? Yeah, we um, we we sold out our supply capacity. And then we raised our prices a little bit, but we found off the agreements and predictable margins as like uh, the, key, the key for us. But it, we, we've recognized that it's highly profitable for the brand because they're gaining market share so quickly with uh, the younger generation of consumers. Okay. What would you say are some of your competitors in the space? Uh, by far, our biggest competitors are the informal waste traders in the communities where we operate. Um, their business model is like be really cheap, so no compliance. Uh, try to indenture when possible, and uh, yeah, like just no, like completely informal. Uh, so we are able to compete against those guys by accessing the global market and then developing strong relations with our industry partners uh, that value the transparency through the supply chain. Um, and then in terms of like the larger kind of niche of plastic with a story, um, we're seeing, hopefully that, I think that niche is going to get bigger, but we're seeing not a lot of regional competition doing that very well. At the moment. What do you think about Octopus, the recycling company? They're focused more on South America at the moment, but they, they seem to be doing pretty well in Mexico and South America. How do you compare? I'm not familiar with them. I'd have to I'd have to do a bit of Google link. No worries. They're an SOSV company. Okay. I'll check them out. Thanks. Thanks, man. What do you view as the biggest risk in the company? Um, the biggest risk in the company, well, we've been through extraordinary shocks uh so far in our company's development, like whether that's the introduction of GST or you know. COVID, like we demonstrated our ability to scale 3x even during COVID. Um, so I think like our team is very resilient, but I think like um, just our, yeah, like maintaining a good, good corporate culture and good, like good team chemistry, I think is like the main key to success. And if that gets disrupted, I think, uh, you know, the, the culture is the, the key to our success. What does success mean for you? Success means getting as many of this in, these informal sector stakeholders onboarded onto our platform and verified through fair trade supply chains and while catalyzing the transition away from fossil fuels. Do you, so you're, you, you might, maybe with franchisees as well, but you're managing the whole collection and processing. What's your kind of environmental standard, environmental concern like with your plants? Yeah, so we we have an internal target to reduce our, our greenhouse gas emissions 7% each year. Uh, we started rolling out electric vehicles in India, which are now starting to uh, become economically viable. And uh, we want to continue to, to do that in terms of also installing solar on the rooftops as part of our budget for our Series A. Um, however, overall, because the waste is collected, like the waste collectors typically don't have a car or a vehicle vehicle so they're picking it up by hand and when we do our lca uh, our supply chains are actually very very minimal uh even compared to the when you compare it to the production of virgin plastic 
so sorry uh, that that that's good in itself i actually meant the processing of plastics um directly you know how, how much of an industrial production how much of an industrial facility do you have uh or do you need to have if you're going to be spinning this out to a lot of friends of franchisees you know what, what what's the processing of the plastic part like right so at our centers the plastic is sorted and graded on conveyor belts uh and the key to ensuring high quality plastic is making sure that the polymers are now mixed because what goes into the extrusion lines where the plastic is melted into granules uh what you put in is what you get out basically um when it comes to when it comes to that process itself um that does use more electricity because you have to heat the material um and it's something that we measure as part of our agreements with our, our, our processing partners that do the conversion uh, into granules. We don't actually do that in-house currently. Okay, yeah, that's what I mean. Cool. Are you able to tap into any government incentives in the work that you're doing? Um, no, we haven't really tapped into any government incentives. Um, our model, I have a bit of a confession. I'm I'm very much allergic to government offices and I've, I've built the model to not have to step foot in them, uh, especially in the global South, because well, global, not, not even the global South, everywhere you go in the world, there's a relationship between the municipality and the waste management contractors. And quite often corruption is used as a way of the waste management contractor getting that contract from the local municipality. So our approach is like, let's not even get involved in that whatsoever. Let's just go right to the base of the supply chain and source from the people who are actually doing the work of picking it up. Um, so we haven't tapped into too much government funding uh, yet. Um, that being said, I think there's, yeah, there's lots of grants and we're getting really good recognition. We also save the municipalities millions of millions of uh, dollars every year by reducing their, their waste disposal fees. So every kilogram of plastic that's picked up by the informal sector is one less kilogram of plastic that taxpayer revenue needs to go towards funding the collection of, which by itself is another huge uh, impact on society. Definitely. Any last questions for uh, Andrew guys? Good. None for me. Awesome, then Andrew, thanks so much for, thanks so much for presenting. I wanna move things along and make sure everybody gets a chance. We, uh, we were in the ocean and all around on the plastic side of things. How about we do, um, how about we do a little bit of desalinization? You want to take things away, Yair, and share what you guys are building out of Israel? Sure thing. Hi, everybody. Uh, let me just share my uh, slides. Mm -hmm. Oh, I don't know what's going on with this screen right now. Pardon me. Okay. So uh, can you see my slides? You are good to go. Your five minutes starts now. Take it away. Perfect. My name is Dr. Yair Kornblut, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Magia. And with us on the call is my co-founder, Professor Matthew Suss. Two billion people around the world do not have adequate access to clean water. A billion people do not have adequate access to electricity. These two problems meet at an extremely important junction because it takes loads and loads of electricity to clean water, which means high costs and high carbon emissions at the same time. To look at this problem a little deeper, if you look at a factory that we actually have running in Israel today that provides desalinated water, for example, to a million homes uh, every year, just the electricity alone costs $70 million per year. 
And the carbon emissions associated with this type of operation would be equivalent to 10,000 uh, Swedes living their daily lives for a year. I mentioned Swedes because uh, actually I'm currently sitting in Sweden. Um, uh, but yes, we are an Israeli company and uh, Matt's over in the US right now. I'm in Sweden. So we're uh, we're like an electron. We're everywhere. <laughs> and uh, and at Megia, we want to address this problem of, of carbon emissions associated with clean water, of the electricity costs by providing hydrogen-powered water and electricity at the same time to address both of these issues. In our solution, we say, let's stop using electricity, but actually instead you input into your water treatment device, our box, dirty water and hydrogen, no electricity. And what you get out is your clean water and electricity at the same time. Our solution is flexible. You can be turning seawater into drinking water or cleaning factory wastewater and helping municipalities because we can actually clean any type of charged pollutant from the water. And the solution is scalable. You could be working with um, small villages or large factories. And um, actually there's already a prototype uh, running in Matthew's lab and it can handle about 10 liters a day. And our goal, our next goal for milestone wise is uh, to be able to do a thousand liters a day. As for our team, uh, as I mentioned, my co-founder was on the call, Professor Matthew Suss. He's a, he has a big laboratory over at the Technion, and he's currently stationed at Harvard for the year. And uh, he's a world-renowned expert in water and energy. As for myself, I'm a serial entrepreneur who's worked in a bunch of different companies around the world. And, um, and as for our mentors and advisors, I'm very happy to say that we have an amazing team. So... Um, Oh, as for where Matthew and I have worked, uh, we've worked at institutions raising from, ranging from Georgia Tech, MIT, Harvard, Stanford, and a bunch of different companies, as I mentioned, around the world. And we're very fortunate to have with us, uh, advising us and acting as mentors, uh, two CEOs from two hardware companies from Israel and Luxembourg. We have a mentor based in the U.S. Uh, working as a VC at EQT. And actually, our, our first advisory board member is the CEO of a uh, battery uh, unicorn company in Israel. Prospective traction, we've already raised over $120,000. We were our first investor is Techstars, and um, we've received over uh, we've received two support letters and an LOI uh, from energy company, from a water company, from a company doing water projects in Africa, and we have uh, already seen acquisition interest from a publicly traded company. Uh, we have a pilot partner in place, and we're in discussions with very interesting players from the steel and ammonia sectors. Our next steps are to fundraise, to um, to grow our team, and so we can build our pilot and work with our partners, and then work in large utilities, and then we can actually expand downwards to remote areas like villages and even space exploration, where you have hydrogen, the need to treat water, and the need to produce electricity. So it's a very interesting application for technology, including, uh, you know, so so you have underwater and some- One minute warning. And also even uh, in space applications. So Meiji is a wonderful, unique opportunity to do good in the world while doing great business. We could save industry billions of dollars while saving uh, 100 million tons of carbon emissions over a decade and addressing global water safety issues at the same time. So. Please connect with us and join us on our mission to uh, to change the world. I'll pull in our other investor panelists while I do. What's behind the name? Oh, this is a combination of Hebrew and Greek. May is a sort of a descriptor of water in Hebrew and Gia is energy, uh, stems from energy in Greek. So it's energy water. 
Very cool. Very cool. Uh, do you want to take things away, Alan, this time? Sure. Uh, thanks for the presentation. Uh, really interesting concept. Um, but I'll, I'll probably say that rather than, than thinking about the, the later stage business, because I'd like to understand a little bit about that pathway. You're in the lab at 10 liters a day. Um, and I guess you've got some data and some energy efficiencies coming at that. What what does the scale up of engineering look like for you guys and, and timeline? Well, we're currently at, you could say that we're at uh, TRL four slash five. If you're, you know, there's a prototype running that can handle a seawater down to almost drinking water. Um, the next steps are to spend the next uh, 18 to 24 months focusing on scale up as well as uh, working with partners to see how well we can treat their water and what their interests are with respect to uh, piloting their initial synthetic water or their actual wastewater to see how our technology handles it. And then third year, you'd be doing most likely uh, pilots within their actual uh, walls um, and getting already paid pilots by mid second year and then third or perhaps third year. And early commitment sales could commence as early as year four. Um, that would be a stretch goal, I would say, um, but something that could be accomplished. So uh, with respect to engineering, uh, there's a paper actually published from Matt's lab talking about the scale-up process and how they went from a few drops to uh, over 10 liters a day. Um, so you have aspects of both materials and system type engineering that takes place, uh, but the path is pretty uh, straightforward in the sense that it takes principles of technologies already existing out there, like electrodialysis or capacitive deionization and, and fuel cells, but it essentially puts it in one single device. So the principles are fairly well understood. Uh, now you're talking about engineering the scale-up process, but at the same time, optimizing materials as well. Uh, I've, I've, I, I understand the concept of, of taking existing technologies um, and, and putting them together, but the, the scale up from 10 liters to the kind of scale that you're talking about at desalination plants are equivalent to 70 million euro installations uh, in Israel um, is, is, a, is a world of pain um, ahead of you. It'd be, is, is, is that type of experience in the team or is, is the team, like you've got a lot of startup experience, Matthew's obviously in the, in the lab in this specialty. Do you have that engineering scale up or that manufacturing capability within the team? Uh, we have someone in the queue, uh, very promising potential hire that has scale up uh, experience uh, in this very specific sector. Um, but we also have an advisor on our board who um, went from founding a battery startup, so electrochemical oriented startup going from tiny cells and now growing into a massive i mean i think they've raised yeah uh, what's happened with doron i had him on an old podcast years ago i just saw the name it's like a flash from the past uh yeah i just spoke with him today um i mean they're doing great which is um i mean it's great to have somebody like that with us because as you mentioned it's no easy task to take something from a laboratory into the market but we surround ourselves with people who have that kind of experience uh, and i know i'm i'm let's say zero degree removed from multiple characters like that. So we have a lot of knowledge support in that sector. And a quick question about the hydrogen part. How are you sourcing the hydrogen? Oh, so we are not um, use, we are not producers of hydrogen. We are users of hydrogen. So, you know, of course, in the long-term vision, we could be uh, a system integrator where we provide your electrolysis or whatever produces the hydrogen in your setting when we 
provide you with a solution that you buy from us. But starting out, the, the current strategy is to work with pre-existing users of hydrogen. So there are a few sectors in the world that use 90% of the world's hydrogen. And those are very appealing sectors for us that would want to reduce costs and would want to reduce carbon emissions like ammonia, methanol, steel. Those sectors all use a lot of cheap hydrogen and need to clean a lot of water. So they already have the hydrogen infrastructure. So it seems very likely that we will start with them as our partners because they already have all the infrastructure related to hydrogen in their facilities. That makes a lot of sense. And for the um, facilities that you all are creating, are you going to have sort of capital partners or use project finance to be able to build that out? I mean, starting out, we're raising and moving into a laboratory. But uh, of course, we're talking to very big players from industry who show a lot of interest in working with us. And there's the potential of relying on their pre-existing infrastructure to do at least some element of the manufacturing. So it could be... It could be a hybridization. You know, you have one source that does uh, some kind of milling or machining, whatever you want to call it. And then you work with this new partner that we work with that maybe has experience of fuel cells, for example, that they could be building another side of it or assembling. So the fact is it's very early days to be deciding on that path, but we're having good discussions with industry that will finally funnel us into the, the path as we get closer and closer to that time. Got it. And do you foresee any regulatory barriers for you all's process? Well, that's why I think it's better to start with industry as well, because, uh, you know, it's not doesn't have to be as tightly controlled as water for drinking. Uh, there's different regulations for industry as there would be for, you know, something that's going to treatment post your factory versus something that's going right into someone's house for drinking. Uh, so I think starting out, it won't be such a challenge. Uh, maybe later on when we try to work with desalination for drinking purpose, it'll be harder, but uh, I don't foresee, you know, any, you, you analyze the water pre and post and you have pretty straightforward results. So I think it should be a clear path. Thank you. How much non-dilutive funding do you have from the Israeli government and the Innovation Authority? Uh, we haven't, we're in discussions with, you know, those kind of characters that help you uh, apply for grants, both in the EU as well as in Israel. Um, in Israel, a lot of the IIA money requires complementary funds. So I think once we secure some amount of these funds, then we can more aggressively work towards complementing it with the grants, both in Israel and uh, in the EU. Okay. We've, we've had the opposite experience where generally the companies already have that lined up and then the IIA is just ready to sign the check once the, once the money comes from the other players. Um, I mean, here I hear contradictory stories about whether or not you should secure the money first or get the IIA signed first. So uh, hmm. good to hear that from you. It, it, it's going to be similar in, in most countries. The, the institutional body isn't going to turn down private match funding. Um, so if you normally if you get that first, it, things are going to accelerate. But it's easier to get the first if you've got the match already there. But either either neither here nor there. How do what's your what's your go to market plan? So you've got a great technology, you've got a great product, you've got some experience. But how do you get this in the hands of of folks? How do you get this into setting? Right now, uh, because of the the attention that the hydrogen and water sectors are getting, uh, it's been fairly straightforward to approach high level uh, folks at uh, in, in industry like. 
I was fortunate. Uh, let, let's say I connected with a CEO of a steel company the other day, and he immediately forwards me to a VP. So I think that because of the the trend, it's a lot easier to get your foot in the door with respect to this piloting step. Um, but later, of course, that's not a scaled way of doing it. So we start off with that. We start doing pilots. We prove that we are useful to these industries. And at the same time, as we get in more fundraising uh, done, we can grow the sales team. We'll be doing a more classic way of reaching out and, and growing the sales, you know, because it's more of a hardware, old style uh, type of sales process. What kind of IP strategy are you looking at or have? Well, um, what's great about this tech is that there are very few people in the world um, who have uh, worked with this and have the capacity to do this kind of work. So Matthew is, is really great in the sense that he does both energy storage as well as water treatment uh, research. And in his laboratory, they do both empirical and theoretical. So they have a really comprehensive skill set that puts us apart from most of the world. Um, and so there's a lot of open space for us to be patenting right now, very aggressively once the funds are in. Um, and then of course, we'll be looking at partnerships to do potential uh, developments together. There's a lot of those EU grants uh, that we were talking about require partnering with other companies. So there's room for doing some joint development, but in the beginning, yeah, we plan on patenting pretty aggressively, but Matthew already comes with a set of uh, built-in know-how that is very rare to find. So when you talk about intellectual property, I mean, it includes know-how as well as patenting, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, thanks. What's your biggest worry on the business, Matt? Matt, oh, was that for me on the business? I'm I'm more of the uh, the tech side, so I'm always thinking about the engineering challenges. Um, but uh, but yeah, on the business side, I mean the the key thing, at least from my perspective, is working with the customers here, identifying, understanding their problems in water, and then showing that showing that we can treat them. I mean that would be the biggest challenge for the business and the tech. Um, but you know, showing that we can address their waters in a smaller scale is a great way to build those relationships and, and create those customers. Um, and I think we can do it. I mean, my lab focuses on all sorts of water problems. We've, we've done a lot of stuff in the water space. Um, so all these applications are unique. They all have their different types of water and what they care about is different. Um, but that's our challenge. That'll be our, our, our challenge going forward. And what about getting up to commercial scale? So TRL 8.9 and ready to roll. Yeah, I, th I mean, I think that's how it starts. If you if you work with these customers and show you can address their waters, um, you know, I've had experience in that process before uh, with different industries, and, and they get pretty excited once you show that you can do the separation that they want. Um, and so that will be the initial stage to go from where we are, TRL four or five, and you know, a small scale device to really getting to the kind of thousand liter per day device or or around there that we can integrate into their facilities. So the scale that would start to be interesting to them. Um, that would be kind of the stepping stone approach. So to get to commercial scale, scales of a very large, it would be really stepping stone of showing we can treat their waters, we can address their problems, embedding into their facility with pilot devices. And then from there, you know, having partners to help us really do that scale up. Um, but with hopefully a lot of interested parties in different industries to, to help support that uh, goal. Are there particular, I know you mentioned industrial partners, but are there any particular industries that you all are zoning in on? 
Yes. So, uh, as I mentioned, um, there are four sectors in this world, in our planet, that use 90% of the world's hydrogen, and three of them are, are extremely appealing. So, steel, uh, ammonia, aka fertilizers, and uh, methanol. They use a very large fraction of the world's uh, hydrogen, and they need to clean a lot of water in both regards of post-process water and also pre-boiler water, most likely, and also they have to do desalination. So there are different uh, solutions that we can offer them, essentially, because they need different types of water treatment. Any last questions, folks? Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Then, then yeah, Matthew. Thanks for thanks for presenting. Incredibly interesting company. And uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully you guys are able to turn the corner on this and look forward to to seeing where it goes. Thank um, you. Thank you. It's always fun to have a little bit of a theme. So we've been talking water for a while. We'll uh, we'll hand things over to somebody who's doing it on a, on a big scale. So wave power, so to speak, but actually making it work, which generally speaking isn't uh, isn't always true of the industry thomas with uh with wave x and while we're while we're getting everything set up guys if you've just uh if you're just tuning in this is the startup tank climate investor pitch show you can find us at the startuptank.com apply there and learn more about our climate accelerator where we bring the the world's top uh pre-seed and seed climate companies on board and help them land two to five new major customers, pilots, some real traction so that they can uh, grow scale and prove out their business and and race at a, as a real up round and have, a, have an actual business as opposed to just focusing on demo days to investors. To learn more, forward.vc and hit the subscribe bell here as well on YouTube if you're watching to make sure you never miss a thing. Now, uh, Thomas, Clement, you guys ready to take things away? Certainly are, absolutely. Awesome. Then uh, yeah, your time starts now. Take it away. Thank you. So we know that the world must move away from fossil fuels if we're to reach net zero by 2050, but there is still a problem, and that is how do we balance the grid when the wind isn't blowing or the sun isn't shining? Now, experts believe that wave energy could be the missing puzzle piece, but despite recent progress, it's still not affordable. Um, and that is the problem we are solving with WaveX. So this is our renewable, sustainable, and continuous source of power. We take a proven technology to generate the electricity and combine it with our innovative solution to finally make it cheap enough. And this innovation is working under the sea floor. So the proven principle remains the same. Researchers and other startups have proven that the most efficient and reliable way of generating electricity from waves is to capture the energy from the seabed where you're protected from the most damaging consequences of storms. However, they embed these flexible membranes within a 900 ton metallic structure, which keeps the cost of energy ridiculously high. We, on the other hand, take these membranes and embed them within the seabed where they can be properly protected, ditching the structure, reducing the device's weight by 60 times and its cost by 50 times. And we've learned how to do this by copying this guy. This is the stargazer fish, and he takes water in through his mouth, pushes it out through his gills into the sediment, and effortlessly buries himself within the sediment. And it is simply this that we're doing with our membranes. So we have two patents pending protecting this particular innovation. Um, and this gives us access to a huge range of other IP opportunities. So reducing the weight and cost of our devices allows us to target an energy cost of only 5 cents per kilowatt hour. 
that is twice as cheap as both uh, gas and coal energy is currently. We can also define our products by what they do not do. They do not generate any noise. They do not take up any space on land. They're out of sight and therefore out of way of navigation of vessels. And they have negligible impact on the local biodiversity. They also have a positive impact and that is combating coastal erosion as they reduce the energy of waves hitting the shore. We sell our devices to project developers who then manage the installation and maintenance for our variety of end users. We are able to scale quickly due to outsource manufacturing and have two main revenue streams going forwards. That is the device sale price itself and also an ongoing annual revenue generated from um, monitoring solutions, which we sell as a subscription model to the end users. And as you can see, over the roughly 20 year lifespan of our devices, this revenue becomes quite significant. So as you can appreciate, the market, global market for electricity is vast and indeed growing. Uh, we found that roughly 40,000 kilometers of, global, of coastline globally, where our solution outperforms all of our competitors, allowing us to prevail on around 20 billion euros of this market. Our team shares a passion for marine environments and has the necessary know-how in terms of engineering, software design, modeling, and also experience in the energy grid. We do lack one critical piece of expertise, however, and that is how to operate flexible structures under the seabed. However, this is completely new expertise and therefore we as a team are having to build it and use it to access all of the opportunities that I've described. We have, we will have a comfortable 60% margin on our devices and monitoring going forwards. In order to reach profitability, however, we will start selling earlier much simpler devices, mainly in the monitoring sector. This we'll do for several reasons, including this initial revenue is useful for our R&D, but also we can help build some One minute warning. Thank you, with future uh, partners and customers. And we can also use these installations to start uh, pr prototyping and testing in real world environments sooner than we would otherwise be able to. So we've spent the last two years prototyping parts of our devices on beaches around the UK. And this has allowed us to file two patents protecting our IP in this technical blind spot. More recently, we've won the European pitching finals for our work and been accepted onto five accelerated programs across the UK and France. We now seek 1 million euros in funding to test our technology in lab settings and to file extra patents. And from here, we will seek further funding to develop a full-size prototype. And we would love to get as many of you on board in the journey as we possibly can. Thank you. And thank you. Thanks for pitching. Let me bring in our other investor panelists quickly. And while I do, I'm sure probably all of the panelists here have gotten this pitch almost once a month in terms of wave energy. What makes you guys so much different? Why is this something this time and not like every other time? Sure. So primarily, I would say two broad reasons. The first obviously being the cost. Um, we've seen all sorts of wave energy startups in the past just sink money and they have massive metallic structures normally floating on the top of the ocean. And this obviously is a massive issue when there's a storm because on the ocean, you have to be uh, sorry, on the surface, you have to be tethered to something and you're exposed to a huge, huge force from simple kinetic energy, basically. Whereas if you're on the seabed, then you can protect yourself from that. But we go a step further in the sense that 
we've really stripped back these devices. So we have competitors who also work on the seabed, but they, as I said, have these huge like 900 ton structures which hold their devices. Um, this keeps the cost high, but we don't need to do that. So we embed our devices within the seabed, um, which obviously reduces the cost, but also keeps them doubly safe in that they can actually sink themselves. If there's a storm coming, they can deflate, they can sink themselves further down under the sediment, cover themselves with sediment and literally hide until the storm has passed. So it, the massive cost comes from maintaining these structures in really, really horrifically challenging environments. And that's what we've managed to negate. Okay, Stephanie. Can you tell us a little bit more about your commercialization process and timeline? I know you all have a prototype now, but when do you anticipate the next iteration and then ultimately um, being able to sell them? Sure, absolutely. So we're raising now. So we've we've prototyped um, a sec sections of the devices. So we've prototyped the energy generation side of things, and we've prototyped the ability to install these flexible membranes under the seabed. So the next phase over the next 12 to 18 months is to bring all of that together. Um, we'll start up in lab settings, but we'll also do some further tests in real environments on the beach. And we'll bring these prototypes together. So we've got one integrated prototype, which we can install, operate, generate electricity and all of that. And then once we've done this, as I say, 12 to 18 months, we'll have done some testing, we'll have got some data and validated that. Then we will begin to scale up and our next prototype will be um, pretty much full scale. And that's going to be where we start doing durability testing. We leave it you know, out off the coast of the UK or France or somewhere for several months at a time. And we can then use that prototype to ensure that it's, you know, iron out all the wrinkles and make sure it's going to work long-term. And that's when we can start getting our potential customers involved. And that's looking to be about probably two to three years from now. Got it. Um, we've had one, one of my challenges with wave energy, and you see lots of devices, we still don't know the best modality of taking energy out of a wave, whether it's a wave bulb actuation, whether it's a pelamus, whether it's an ocean wave, whether it's a renewable hydro, you know this, I mean, your colleagues in the EEF bought some Irish companies uh, in this space and in the tidal space. Um, we still don't know the most efficient modality of taking energy out of a wave. And then we add in the scaling and then we add in the durability in setting and your point is well made about going to the seabed. Can you tell me a little bit about how efficient an energy capture this is um, and bear in mind that I'm, my next question is going to be the scale that you need to operate at that is a durable device in, in, in the sea. Sure. Simon, you want to take this? I can. Yeah, thanks. Um, the uh, well, the other project that used the same uh, technology for wave energy conversion through a submerged pressure differential, uh, their estimates for um, uh, load factor is around 15%. Um, the thing is that um, their, uh, their capacity factor is um, proportional to the, their active surface. Uh, well, no, well, the, the power they can make out is uh, proportional to the active surface. Uh, and the price of their installation is almost proportional to their active surface. Yeah. The thing is with our solution is that we can um, maybe keep um, a capacity factor per, um, uh, uh, no, I mean, we can keep um, 
uh, yield per surface uh, pretty low, but we can extend the surface very much as it's really, really cheap to build and to install. And uh, that way uh, we're expecting to be able to raise the capacity factor. And what was the other part of your question? But, but it, well, if I, if I just jump on that point, the bigger your device, the more, the less durable it's going to be, the more it's going to be exposed to rip, tear, power takeoff yeah, issues. Yeah, the maintenance costs will be proportional, but the, uh, well, for most other projects, uh, the, um, the design, the initial design and installation and the, the material, the initial material is uh, highly, uh, yeah, high capex. Um, ours is, is really not, uh, and the maintenance will be somewhat proportional, but with the, the ability to sink uh, during storms, we expect to have, well, a lower, uh, yeah, lower needs for maintenance. I should also just add in here, when we're talking about scaling up these devices, it's not simply a case of we have two balloons and we make the balloons that much bigger, because you're right, that in terms of durability and that's... Multiple lots of balloons, yeah. Exactly, mm -hmm. so we have a whole array of balloons. So actually we have the same um, component that we just replicate several times and connect them all up to a larger turbine. So you'll plug them in and out like cells, almost. Exactly, uh, um, exactly. You hope. You, uh, yeah, yeah, we hope. <laughs> What depth and distance to shore do you think you're going to have these devices? So we're looking at somewhere between 8 and 20 metres of water depth. So compared to our competitors, we're incredibly near shore. This is sort of between maybe one, 200 metres and sort of seven, 800 metres offshore. So actually in terms of installation and ongoing maintenance, you can survey and you can maintain these devices very cheaply. You don't need necessarily even to um, hire vessels and stuff to get you out there and also you can do it with divers so there's no no need for sort of unmanned um, submersibles those sorts of things which again brings the cost down and grid connection is really lower to uh, the cost of grid connection mm. absolutely so just sorry last question for me for a second i don't know how, how good but if you've got a 40 megawatt array what physical size is that very roughly so i can get so i can give you a 1.5 megawatt um array is roughly 15 meters along shore and 40 meters out to sea and we can generate uh roughly 50 megawatts per 100 meters of coastline so there's your answer really it's sort of um about 100 meters across and then maybe a couple of hundred meters out to sea. Uh, 50 megawatts per kilometer of coast. Kilometer, sorry, kilometer. Cool. Can you tell us a little bit about your IP strategy? Sure, so the two patents we've got pending at the moment cover the ability to install and sync flexible structures under the seabed, which um, if you look on patent, database, patent databases, is completely unexplored. So we've got quite a lot of freedom to operate in that particular scenario. And that also is very beneficial in terms of we found some other sort of supplementary markets where our technology could be useful. And those are namely in um, coastal monitoring. So being able to detect how the seabed is changing, you know, which is very useful in ports and places like that where they need to know are we silting up? Are we, you know, are things eroding quicker than we thought? 
um, but also in coastal protection. So we're currently investigating another use for our technology, which is we take the membranes and we sink them, we inflate them and we create a sandbar. And this sandbar acts like a, like a submerged breakwater and can actually protect areas of the coastline from the most damaging waves. So over the next year or so, and that's what part of the funding that we're raising now will go towards, is to file some extra patents to protect specifically these extra areas of, um, of opportunity, I guess, these supplementary markets. And it's these markets which we'll be um, selling devices to in the near term as we can develop you know, the monitoring solution we need to develop anyway for the wave energy converters. Um, so once that's developed, we can sell that as a package into uh, the markets I've just described. Um, and, and that will bring in some early revenue in order to fund further R&D on the wave energy side. So yeah. Could that bring in governmental grants for governments that don't want their beaches getting wrecked? Yeah, so we're currently talking to the Environment Agency um, who are doing some work specifically on flood and coastal resilience at the moment. They've got a number of projects going that we're in discussions about. Um, and also the Maritime and Coast Guard Agency um, in the UK. They do all of the um, hydrography and mapping of ports and uh, coastal regions in the UK. So we're also talking to them about whether they want to start a project with us as well. So yes, there are there are little projects ongoing that we are we're tapping into. And are you filing these patents globally or like what sort of your your regional strategy there? Sure. So the two that have been filed already are EU patents currently, um, but they've just been they're in the final stages of approval in the EU. Um, and then we're just about to extend them, not entirely globally, but certainly to sort of Australia, Japan, those sorts of regions where actually the wave resource is ideal for um, our devices. So we're being quite strategic in the sense that we're targeting parts of the world where we are likely to either it may be our pilot or it may be in the first few years that we'll need to start um, exploring. That makes sense. How much more favorable are you than just solar? Because solar costs are coming down pretty exponentially mm -hmm. and it's very proven. Sure. Sure. So on this note, it purely comes down to the fact that we are a more stable source of energy. So certainly you have the night and day issue, whereas waves, because they're sort of there's a whole number of factors influencing waves, that it's a much more steady um, source of energy. And in terms of cost, I mean, I've mentioned the improvements and costs we've made on other wave energy um, startups and concepts, um, but it it is just going to be a case of time. So we've already started at a very low cost for wave energy, but as time goes on, and the main cost for us, in fact, is the turbine cost, um, as the membranes and stuff are relatively cheap, but turbines are things that we will have to buy in, um, but also connecting to the grid. So the grid connection cost is a massive part of our cost and something we can't do anything about yet. But as offshore installations, be that wind, be that tidal, be that wave, become more familiar and more common around the coastlines in the UK and France and everywhere, then the less the cost will become because we can just tap into existing connections which are already there. But as those grow and there is more of those existing connections, mm -hmm. will they need you? When there's wind and there's solar and there's other sources that are there to kind of make up for the off hours so to speak is that something where you're going to be because i feel like with this there's so much extra risk involved versus anything else 
it has to have a significantly better ROI because otherwise, why? Sure. Well, I think the way that we're marketing it is that we can fill in the gap. So if you've if you're a, an energy provider or you're a project developer that has already got this infrastructure there, you've already got a grid connection. We can effectively offer you some additional revenue because when your connection isn't producing much because the wind's not blowing, you're actually we can provide some energy to use on your infrastructure that will bring you some additional revenue. So we're sort of plugging the gaps in that sort of sense. Yeah, actually, the comparison should be not the cost of solar energy or wind energy, but the cost of solar energy or wind energy plus storage. And it's that that we need to compare to. But what's the, I don't know the demand pricing, but I feel like at night, energy costs are probably much lower than they are during the day because people are asleep. Mm -hmm. I, I might be totally off there, but I feel like you would get a premium during the day because it's needed more but in winter uh price is much higher than in summer and sun is not uh producing as much so that's okay. another reason to add other sources and other well it's uh, sort of a mitigation problem when you have several sources you need less storage or um, backups uh, rather than if you only have one that is specifically going to produce all at the same time do you re really think you're going to be building these as power? Uh, sorry, let me rephrase. Do you think you're going to be operating them as, as power generators? Or are you going to be selling them to EDF, selling them to ESB, selling them to ORWE for them to operate off their wind farms or off their grid connections? Or are you, do you actually foresee yourself becoming the a generator? No, so the the way the business model is set up currently is that we we are not the generator. We okay. will sell the devices to a third party who will just then that way scaling becomes much simpler because and much if, quicker. Because if you had um, an erosion protection system of kilometer scale, councils will pay you eleven million. The Crown Estate will pay you eleven million for that type. That's that's the kind of capital expenditure that they're going to put into. Uh, groins and concrete walls and all these other met methodologies. Um, so they're going to pay you the equivalent amount of money as you think you'll be doing for power generation. They'll pay you that for um, coastline preservation, if it worked. Exactly, exactly. So that's what this next 12 months hopefully will, will be able to tell us is, are these other markets viable and what size are they? So I wonder... This is more of a comment than a question. Apologies uh, if that's not the right format for it. But I wonder, would you have a, a really an even more interesting pitch if you propose this as a climate mediation uh, or adaptation solution rather than a generation uh, source where you're going to get phone lots of questions about having to compare with wind, solar, battery, wind, wind solar, storage, um, nighttime, daytime, etc. Developers, not developers. If you sold this as a climate mitigation, would it be um, cleaner for you for an investment? Sure, quite possibly. So we've currently got a researcher at Imperial College working with us to model, I say model, computer model, the um, our capability in how much energy can we actually reduce if we just raise a sandbar? You know, yeah. is this meaningful or is this actually, you know, compared to a concrete breakwater, is this actually just child's play? We don't really know yet. So. Sure. Hopefully the next year will tell us that and then it may well be we'll speak to you again in 12 months time and actually we're completely different and we're we're pushing something different as our main offering. But um, 
but yes, we'll we'll see over the next twelve months, hopefully. Do you have any worries that I feel like when you are modeling this out and as you are starting to generate power and also deal with the coastline erosion, et cetera, every single inch of coast is going to be different based off of the kind of ocean floor topography, et cetera. So is that something that you're going to be able to to map out and project well, or are there going to be different, for instance, resonances, et cetera, where you've got to get everything exactly right with each project, otherwise you're generating just much less it seems like as opposed to solar where i kind of set it up and i can see how much radiation is coming from the sun mm. what the angles are they feel like a lot more variables when you're in the water mm. sure no there are absolutely um uh, and the only answer i can give to that is that we the things that we'll be modeling over the next year or so are how do we best account for that so as i mentioned we have various different numbers of balloons and those can be spaced at different intervals. And we, you know, we'll have to do various hydrographic surveys and various um, environmental surveys before we install on any site. And part of that will be working out um, what the wave resource is, what the average wavelength of waves are. And we hopefully can tailor these installations to the specific sites. And an advantage that we do have to is that uh, compared to concrete submerged breakwaters, uh, they are installed in one place and will not move till the end of the project. Uh, our, uh, our systems can be inflated, deflated actively, dynamically, and we can try to learn in this specific place what will be the best way to, uh, when will be the best time to inflate them and deflate them. But that's almost completely unscalable because every place is like a consulting project then, right? Well, there's a artificial intelligence data mining for that. We have a monitoring solution, which people may be interested in as well, to um, just to scope out sites as well. Interesting, interesting. I, I see a lot of potential, just a lot of risks as well. You wanted to say something, Alan? I was just going to say, Matt, you, you were saying that we're not all that sharky. I, I didn't know we could open up the tough ones. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Open up the tough ones. I mean, don't offer like the five bucks for uh, the the 10% the in your grandma's included kind of Shark Tank uh, Kevin O'Leary yeah, deal. Fine. But yeah, no, you can uh, go go as deep as you want to. The whole point is to is to go deep, ask hard questions and make it valuable for the founders and also for uh, for investors. Good any last questions, folks? No, but if, on that spirit of being helpful, there's a, a bunch of folk in Ireland that I can connect you to. Obviously, you know the Open Hydro guys or, or your colleagues will, but also people from Wave Bob and Tony Lewis, um, who set up a lot of the European standards around scaling engineering of, of wave tech and things like that. So I'll connect you to a bunch of those folk offline. Thank you very much. Thank thanks. you. Very cool. Then thanks uh, thanks for coming on and presenting, guys. Pleasure. I'm going to take, take a quick... Uh, halftime timeout. To, so if anyone needs to run, I'll do a little talking in case you got to pee or grab water and uh, say thanks to everyone for tuning into the Startup Tank. This is all brought to you by Forward VC and our partner in crime, Climate Accelerator. We, uh, we're your partner in crime. Literally, we jump in, invest in pre-seed and seed companies one to two a month, and then go uh, kind of pedal to the metal or uh, to the mat, so to speak, for our companies, helping them with introductions to dozens, if not hundreds of corporates, clients, partners, et cetera, to get some real traction because building a business, especially these days, 
it's about building a business. It's not about raising a fund, raising a round and having a, a fancy pitch deck. If that sounds interesting for you and what we do, check out forward.vc and you can check out our accelerator. And this is all brought to you by Valbon by Carta, the, the system we love for setting up SPVs or special purpose vehicles. But that's not all that Carta does. So outside of running an investment or a syndicate into companies or running a fund, which Carta has great products for, Carta also has uh, cap table management uh, tools, services, et cetera, for companies. So you can set up your cap table, set up your employee options, your uh, options pool, have everything that you need to manage your cap table, manage your raise, and uh, be successful with the company. For more details and to uh, check out Carta and all of their offerings, visit forward.vc, the number forward.vc slash Carta, C-A-R-T-A. And now, uh, without further ado, let's... Uh, Let's move things on now. You wanna you wanna take it away, Mario, and tell tell us what the future of e-mobility actually looks like. Sure, uh, a better a better or a better way of doing it, so to speak. I'm I'm super happy to do that, especially now that the um, hard questions come up and you open the stage for for the tougher ones. No, um, I'm Mario, the founder and CEO of Clean Bikes, and uh, thanks for organizing this uh, startup tank today. We are reducing 10 tons of CO2 per bike by replacing diesel engine vans from urban transportation. And uh, we work basically with professionals and that's also um, my passion with the whole team, a passionate team of bike and motorcycle experts from different fields um, to build the number one brand for fast micromobility. And uh, the customers all have the same problems. They get more and more requests to deliver uh, within a city, um, their own goods or as retailers, their retail goods and uh, um, logistics companies. But cities um, have also the problem of increasing the um, quality of life. So they've reduced the classic fleets. So our customers have a problem, more requests, higher cost but they can't really use their own fleets anymore. And they need a replacement, uh, a replacement that doesn't get uh, them charged and congestion charging or their fleets banned. Um, cities like Paris reduced the speed to 30 kilometers an hour, which is about 20 miles per hour. And uh, well, what fits to urban transportation, it's the bicycle. Um, bicycle doesn't get stuck in traffic jams, can use alternative routes. Uh, with electric support, can support up to 20 miles per hour, 25 kph. Um, and the, basically, the weight of the vehicle is the most um, using energy in, in city transportation. And our vehicles only lose 0.25 kilowatts. So we are not generating new renewable energy. We just use less. And all of that comes from renewable sources, obviously. Why is now the right time? Well, electric mobility is talked about a lot in, in four-wheelers, cars, and now trucks getting launched by Tesla. But the real boom happened in two-wheelers. And two-wheeler dynamics is our core expertise. My university, Technical University Vienna, knows a lot about uh, two-wheeler vehicle dynamics, so bicycles and motorcycles. And we transferred that to three wheelers. That gives you the capability of still building a really narrow vehicle. So you are fast and dynamic, use the less space, um, but you have all the stability of a three wheeler on, on uneven roads around the corner, um, on slippery roads, gives you more driving dynamics. And that's where we also filed for patents or have patents granted. 
and are in process of finding new IP in that space. Um, and what we have built so far is a Pedelec version. So um, our customers don't need the driver's license or need to um, get a license plate or use helmets or whatever. It's just uh, every child can um, ride a bicycle. And our customers are mainly logistics or retail or craftsmen, um, B2B customers. And they can decide if they use flex work, flex cover or flex life version or switch between all of them. So we have customers, they do grocery delivery in Paris for Paris Fashion Week and uh, for the catering service and the goods arrive in the best way at the customer faster and cheaper. And on the weekend, they want to use the same product for their family to go to a park or do outdoors um, to get some green um, outdoor time with the kids and they swap just to the flex life. So they use the bike in their everyday life. The market is growing to an 80 billion e-bike market or as the latest study um, in micromobility says 260 billion in 2025. Our cargo bike market specifically that we address now is growing to um, 3.8 billion in 2030 worldwide. And we want to address the urban European CEP market of three wheelers, where we want to get market leader with 150 million revenue in 2030. One minute warning. Um, so far, we are positioned in the pedelec version, but now we can expand to speed pedelecs and other throttle higher speed vehicle versions. And that gives now the opportunity to invest in our 3 million seed round at the 9 million pre-money valuation before next year we do our Series A. We are 10 people have expert in, uh, experts in the advisory board scaling Red Bull or production at KTM developing motorcycles for BMW. And we use the 3 million uh, for new development uh, customization for some of our key account customers and expand to other markets like France and UK. And uh, before we go into um, full operational um, operational lease. And yeah, if you want to participate in the 3 million round, uh, we have still tickets open starting at 500K and we'll close end of Q1. And time is up. And anyone that's watching this publicly, none of this is a solicitation. We are purely CRing information. If you want to learn more about information about them, of course, you may reach out because it's a free world. And um, let me bring in, the, bring in the other investor panelists now, hand things over. Uh, Stephanie, you want to take it away? Sure, absolutely. Um, so just a quick question. Could you um, go a little bit more through your revenue model? Yeah, so far we are looking on cash flow. So our um, customers are paying us 50% upfront after order and 50% after delivery. And um, they pay us about seven and a half thousand euros for the base model. Uh, if we do direct sales, about 30% uh, of our sales is uh, direct sales. The future is um, more operational leasing. So customers will pay about 250 euros per month uh, to just have always an operating vehicle, but that needs more cash. And we were looking on our cash flow. Inventory financing is our biggest uh, cash need was in the past. We have uh, made now about 2.3 million in revenue over the last two years. Uh, a million revenue in last year. And um, well, that needs a lot of working capital because our lead times of parts are 
pretty long, so we need to store. And especially now that we grow into key account customers, like we have pipeline of 4,200 bikes at 25 million revenue potential in the pipeline, and we need to finance that a little bit more. But um, that's why we are raising some capital because that can leverage also debt funding. Um, we will, for future revenue models, also sell um, service um, uh, on the site next to the bikes that we sold so far. And because a lot of funding topics, government funding came up, some of our customers, depending on the country like Germany, the customers get up to 4,000 euros um, funding for these kind of bikes, um, or 2,000, depending on, on the area and the city. So local or regional government grants for bikes for our customers. Got it. And, and for your customers, what does a typical contract look like? Or is it sort of you know, per fee on a fee basis? Well, it's um, really only they buy one bike or 10 bikes and um, pay us for the bike for now. But we have, let's say, competitors who um, do operational leasing. So it's a two-year two to three-year contract for them. We didn't do that so far because we couldn't finance that. We need cash flow back, coming back in. And our customers are willing to pay that for now. But a bigger growth factor would be um, to finance a fleet of uh, 10 million um, would help a lot of customers to, to finance their operation. But it's also a risk factor. We, we didn't want to fund all the startups that raised a lot of venture capital and want to have a fleet and then go bankrupt. So we are glad to work so far with small, medium enterprises who are liquid uh, for a long time and, and we don't care about their future um, liquidity. Yeah, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. And uh, last question, just in terms of um, sort of how you all are getting customers, is it through inbounds? You mentioned that you have, you know, sort of the longer standing, smaller, medium sized enterprises. So how long do those sales cycles uh, typically go for? I think the quickest um, direct sales was like two weeks. So an inbound on our website and we closed it within two weeks. Uh, those are the small, medium enterprises. The key account customers, which uh, the biggest one was 10 bikes, um, they take between six and 18 months. So we have some customers in our pipeline who again postponed for another half a year. Um, but while well, the offer that's out there is in for the first batch, 700 bikes, it's 6 million revenue. And we are now in the top three and want to close them in between May and July this year. That's what they say where they do the decision between the final three. Um, and they do testing. So they pay us mostly for the tests, like monthly fee, test the bike in their fleet. And based on that, do a decision. But um, that's a future growth model. The other sales pipeline, which was over 50% in the past, was through our dealers. So the bike dealers, we have about 60 bike dealers in the Dach and Benelux countries. Um, they, um, well, they have longer lead times, but if they then order, we deliver within six to eight weeks to the dealers and they then deliver to the customer. And these take about let's say 15%, this is what I share publicly um, of margin. Did you say it's like an eight, up to an 18-month sales cycle for 10 bikes or 70K? No, that's the um, 700 bikes. Uh, ah, okay. 
then that's a little bit more uh, a little bit more interesting then okay can i talk about that uh fleet purchaser so uh you're in the final three for 700 bikes how many fleet buyers like that are there in europe and then so, my, re my real question is how do they compare and contrast due to the competitors well, um, first of all, we had like two sales, two full-time salespeople last year, and they built the pipeline only in the last year with those key accounts of about 4,200 bikes. And we had a social media budget of 15,000 for the whole year. So that was almost nothing. And we built that kind of pipeline. I think we will close between 10 and 20% of those for the next year. But uh, the, the potential for those fleets is... Um, I think about 20 to 25% of our future revenue. I think key accounts will make give a lot of sense, but we also see small, medium enterprises, craftsmen um, as our strengths. Uh, everyone who wants to deliver, um, they, I, I'm not sure. I mean, Alan, I, you're from, from Dublin. There's a big competitor from um, the UK now, EAV. They build four wheelers. There are some in those areas. I I um, don't see them as competitors. I think a fleet owner wants to have a separate bigger vehicles to smaller vehicles because every delivery is different. And um, we also have the customers who want to buy now the 700 bikes. That's just the portion of the whole fleet um, that they purchase. They, is that the question you want to go to? It it, it it kind of if I can just dive a little deeper on it. Um, so in you know pick your big six in Europe, um, there's going to be twenty or thirty potential customers who could buy a fleet of scale, um, because it, you, or or there's ten or there's five or whatever whatever the answer is going to be. Because I'm trying to fight and figure out how many unit customers there are likely to be of fleets because there's there's the business model over here with distributors and agents uh, to sell ones, twos, and threes. That's fine. That's one thing. Or there's a key account model over here to sell 300s, 400s, and 500s. And I'm trying to work out how many unit customers you think there are that are going to shift to these type of uh, units. And then actually my real question underneath that is, how do you compare and contrast to either product coming in from the Far East, existing competitors? What do these fleet buyers look for? Is it battery performance, which is a commodity? Is it comfort, which is a commodity? Is it mobility, which is a commodity? And I'm wondering how you compare that way. Yeah, let me address those in, in two separate topics. I sure. do think the, the segmentation is really in the, the fleet owners, which are postal services, the classic um, French post, uh, Dutch post, etc. And they all um, start replacing their existing fleets with electric mobility. So it, when we only talk about Europe. Then we have those bigger um, UPS, DHL, Amazon, so between retail and logistics companies, um, they really depend on government regulations. And this is what's happening. Everybody who wants to do last mile delivery to cities, to the high paying customers, need at a certain point to switch their fleets to a more environmental friendly solution, first of all. And when we compare to a 60,000 euro electric delivery van, while well, seven and a half is almost nothing. Yeah, you can't do a next day delivery model with our bikes, but that's also what customers demand. They want same hour or same day delivery. So you yeah. need faster versions. And that's 
kind of also the differentiation of us against others. We focus on not the 15-minute deliveries, uh, which in my opinion is not uh, long-term efficient because you don't ever make a margin on that. You need to do micro tours, but not eight-hour tours like the next day delivery model, but in the time zone of two to three hours. And that's how you make an efficient um, logistics operation and you do, at the other hand, a good customer convenience. And that's also what our um, good customers do now. They do delivery times of two to three hours and they combine several customers on one tour. And um, the vehicle dynamics is kind of the core technology that we use, but what customers really like is making their operations efficient. So they always think about how much does one delivery cost and in the past, it was like, just put a big van with a lot of packages okay. on one tour. And then you do like 10 to 15 packages per hour. And that's how you get to a like one euro delivery cost. Um, at us, we, we do a similar thing. We combine them and give you more speed. Uh, and the bicycle or the e-bike or the speed pedelec always give you that the highest speed from customer A to B. And that's that's how we reduce the cost. Um, so we are 30% faster than any other diesel van because you don't get stuck in traffic jams. It's easy to park. But there's a lot of cargo e-bikes out there as well. Yeah, they are either slow or um, ugly or um, not convenient. So our customers, I mean, you said it's a commodity, but that's we, we figured it out over time. Sometimes we were proud of our vehicle dynamics, but sometimes just to change the saddle was um, getting the customer, the driver more happy uh, with our product than everything else. So it's it's really having the driver and the buyer and everyone in the cycle happy um, that made us successful in the past. And what makes the bikes faster though than other e-cargo bikes? I don't understand. Well, um, so the classification I showed a little bit on one picture was um, that you have the two-wheeler cargo bikes. Um, they have low capacity. So you, if you just want to deliver one or two packages, that doesn't fit. So you need a higher volume. And higher volume normally goes with wide, big, um, heavy vehicles. And those can't drive uh, at the speeds that we can because of the driving dynamics that we have. So they are unstable um downhill they are unstable at 25 kilometers an hour and hours are not um and you can still because they are super narrow go on bike lanes so you um, can use the bike infrastructure and that gives you the ability to not get stuck in traffic jams as, as other bigger vehicles do we don't compete against those private um, vehicles those private vehicles are not suitable for heavy duty logistics, but we are kind of taking everything out of what's still a bicycle and can be used as a bicycle. And that's also what gave us the advantage to go to the market now. Um, but the technology gives us also the opportunity then to increase our, our speed of the vehicle to speed pedelecs and throttle only. So 45 kilometers or 30 miles per hour. And this is what no other competitor can do with the technology that we have right now. Why not license the technology then as opposed to becoming the manufacturer? 
Well, that's um, the request that we got now. For example, some Indian companies reach out to us because the um, Indian market is booming and they know that uh, in the car, electrification is going from 5 to maybe 15% uh, market share, but two and three wheelers is going from um, 10 to 100% in the next eight to 10 years. Um, we see the same happening in the African markets where all those motorcycle markets so that's an is an option then. Um, if we have established our brand in Europe to do licensing, but does doesn't need to be the case. We are now we are also in discussions now to maybe early sell our, our company to a bigger vehicle manufacturer, um, and that's also the possibility then to scale internationally. Um, we're in current discussions, but. We do think there's more possible than only be a vehicle manufacturer. Then at the end, the fleet owners need the software and the routing software behind it. They need the operations and they need battery swap solutions. So combining all of that, in my opinion, is the VC case behind it. Just to stay as a vehicle manufacturer is exactly as you said. Then we could sell to a bigger corporate now or do so uh, technology licensing. I think you just lost all the VCs because you said you were considering selling to a bigger corporate now. Well, I do think we can also um, scale still with the VC and sell at a later stage. There's at every level of between every round um, already the opportunity for an exit. I do think that's possible. I agree. But when you're working out or you're trying to resist eating a cake or you're trying to re resist something and it comes down to emotional willpower, the first time you allow yourself to accept that decision of Maybe it's time to call it quits. It's hard to last through that roller coaster that comes afterwards and keep pushing yourself once you've already decided this is good enough. That would just be my two cents in terms of kind of venture type outcomes. That's something I don't know if if Alan or Stephanie would agree with me, but if you think about selling out that early, it means generally you don't want to go that long. Well, I, I mean, not that long. I mean, I, I'm doing this now for 10 years on the company. I started off with R&D on the R&D side of it. And then um, we're on the market since three years. And I'm considering all options. But I, I do think it is possible. But if we don't close uh, VC on time, we still have to figure out the, all other options. And I think that's the nice thing that we already do revenue now. And it's not only a potential future exit and uh, IPO, but we could do that early on as well. Um, so yeah, but I, I'm not saying that I want to get out of that business. That's definitely not the case. That's also when we discuss with potential exit partners, how can I still participate and grow the company, but in another corporate and, and I think that's feasible in both ways. I, but but I'm, I'm happy that you see it in a different way and to get that feedback. But that, that, that was also kind of our strategy from the beginning. It's like, do we just build something that will go to the market in five to 10 years, like a big unicorn without revenue? And that's not what I wanted to build. I wanted to bring a, custom, a product to customers early on, learn together with them how the market is shaping. And that's also what we see from key account customers. Um, we only work with those who already know what they want. A lot of those out there, fleet owners, 
they just don't know how to solve the problems that they are facing. And we help those who already do decisions now. Okay. Stephanie, Alan, any last questions? Um, just a quick clarification. Um, so for your startup now, have you said you've been working on this for 10 years or is the life of the startup 10 years? How long has the company been around? The company is around for 10 years, but the first seven years was R&D. For R&D, we got 200K grants and I was in, in some R&D projects, um, like 5 million projects, just as a startup. And since 2019, I got first investors on board to bring the product to the market in 2020. So from first investment till the market was one year, and now we are since two years on the market, um, two and a half years. And since last year, we have brought the manufacturing assembly line in-house and built the structure for scaling. And I think now it's the right time to scale with the Seed Plus Series A um in the next year and um that was not so easy when we were still in prototype phase it didn't make sense to raise that much money at that stage uh, we wanted to have market traction and show um, the right product market fit and that's what we have done now and now it's time um, to put more money in and grow that okay got it thank you then awesome thanks thanks for sharing mario I would want to kick things over to our last company of the night then. Matias, you want to you wanna take things away, start up your video and uh, and jump in. And Piero, with a water-filled glass, a company Hello. that's named for pretty much exactly what it does. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, mm. Just give me a sec to start sharing the screen. Is just a second. I hope this works out. Wait, where is the ah, share screen? Yeah, okay. Can you please confirm if you see my screen, please? Looks yeah. good. Take it away. All right. Thank you. Um, I hope you can hear me well. Please shout if you don't. Um, my name is Matthias. Uh, my colleague Piero is here with me today. Um, as Matt said, um, the we would like to pitch you water for glass, which is exactly what we do. Uh, the reason why we do this is because glass is an, an extremely ubiquitous material. Um, it gives us view, it gives us daylight, it's transparent, it's usually invisible. Um, but because of this reason, uh, we are actually not aware how much it impacts our built environment. Um, it's responsible for uh, a big chunk of the energy consumption in buildings. Um, so if we would be able to improve them, uh, we could save so much CO2 that is equal to double of aviation or all the carbon impact of all cars, which is or double of all the waste generation, uh, carbon impact of waste in the world. And there is, there is a couple of reasons why we're not doing this. And that's what, that is the problem that we would like to solve and talk to you about today. So um, glass produces, uh, is responsible about 25, 40% of your energy bill, uh, even in a typical building where windows are small. Um, but we are not, so if you could replace your window to a better window, you could actually save a lot of carbon. Uh, but we are not doing it because it's a very massive process. It's really expensive. 
obviously, the better window you get, the pr pricier it is. But also, but that's just where your costs start. You have to, you have to um, have access from the outside, uh, break the facade. You have to get permits. Uh, you need scaffolding of the building height. There's a lot of issues there. The bigger your building, um, the bigger your problem is, the bigger your headaches that you have to face. And so in the end, you just buy solar panels, as exactly as Matt put it, put it, because it will save you less carbon, but it's just much less hustle. Um, it has a lot of problems that people uh, don't necessarily associate with glass, for example. So for example, overheating is reason of glass. It's not reason of the rest of the building. Um, and, uh, and obviously cooling down the building is also affects a lot. So it really drives your energy bills and your thermal comfort. What the industry does right now is, um, to put it very simple, is either they put some coating uh, on the glass or they use more glass panes. Uh, we don't do those because they make glass products very expensive um, and they don't perform as well. Um, that will be proportional to the cost, so the payback doesn't come down. Um, so there's a reason people are just not interested to go with them. But we have to address windows. There is no chance that uh, they are responsible for such a high part of the CO2 emissions in the world that there is no chance that we're going to meet our climate targets if we don't do something. So we use water. Uh, one reason is because water is a natural material. So the carbon of producing a water-free glass is almost the same as producing a double glass or a triple glass. Uh, unlike coatings, which have increased the carbon content by 20, 28%, 28 times, sorry. Um, so uh, it's a natural solution and it also works differently. So put it simple, water absorbs instead of insulates. So in the summer, it blocks the sun to come in. In the winter, it blocks the heat to escape. Uh, so in that sense, uh, it is really simple and it uh, saves a lot of energy. Uh, much more than a typical technology can. So for example, you can save up to between 45, 75% of energy compared to a double glass, depending where you are. It works in all climates uh, where you have buildings. One it's minute very warning. E it's easy, very easy to scale and to build. Uh, we addressed, we took um, about 1 million pounds in, in grants total to address risks uh, to make it work. We have granted patents uh, that uh, that work uh, already granted and work. It is cheaper, it saves more energy. Um, it's a licensing system. So we sell license to glass factories and construction companies. So we have no limit to scale. Um, and we have a lot of legislation that actually backs our, our to grow. Uh, uh, local law 97 in New York is one. Um, and uh, we already have traction in companies that we work with uh, across the world uh, describing license fees. We have projects in pipeline. Um, and finally, this is our team um, uh, that comes from sales to finance and technical experts. And we have, we're fortunate to work with large uh, partners among the biggest glass producers in the world to make sure that the company can grow. Why, why are we better? Why are we more competitive than- Time than is other, up. Any other How project? much are you raising? Why are you better? Um, we are better because what if glass you can put inside, uh, on, inside of the window um, without, you don't need to remove the window, the existing window. You can just put our product behind. So you escape all these issues that you have, all the headaches you need. And, uh, and we are raising five, uh, half a million uh, for currently to extend our team and uh, expand our, uh, our presence in the market.
Take it away. Alan's got big questions, I hear. Well, like, I'm looking at my window in front of me here, and yeah. my window serves purposes around structure in my office, um, around energy, but I because I want to look through it. So what does filling my double lens, uh, or what is the lensing effect? What's the distortion um, potential if I fill my glass windows with water and I'm trying to look through them? Absolutely nothing. So the photo behind me is um, is one of the buildings that we built. Um, the water layer is very thin, typically like 15 mil. Um, so it's absolutely no impact. You can't tell. Um, you can't tell if, if there's water in it. Um, so we can simply show you photographs where we have the doors, for example, that are normal glass, and you have water free glass that are fixed, and you can't tell the difference. Okay, cool. So. Yeah, I, I get when we double glaze and triple glaze and we want to put layers between the panes of glass in order to have energy insulation. I, I get the logic, um, but I can't, I've never considered that it wouldn't have a distortion. It wouldn't have a lensing effect. I wouldn't be able to notice that I've got water in between my panes. If 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 it's demonstrably true that it isn't, then it's clearly a strong insulator. So happy days. Yeah. 15 mils of water and so you don't have any prism effects so you don't have any um any element of uh, light being split coming through or happening any effects inside no because water is the perfect coating so um it has a massive absorption but it the most of it works in the invisible spectrum of radiation um so so like I always use the example like birds or snakes that have a different spectrum of vision than we do. They would see the difference, but we wouldn't. Um, so that's what it makes it the perfect coating because it absorbs energy in the spectrum where we cannot see it. And in that spectrum, it absorbs really well. So like if you Google um, radiation absorption of water, yeah. like Wikipedia, you will see the absorption coefficient. I'm sorry to go science, but you will see oh, a graph where where um, in the visible spectrum, it drops down. It's almost nothing. And in the invisible spectrum, it would go, so, go up. I, I think the question uh, that I'm throwing around in my mind is dealt, I think you'll say is dealt with by the fact that it's a 15 mil layer of water, where mm. if it's something thicker, it's literally like looking into a fish tank and it's going to have a distortion effect. So then if it is a 15 mil layer of water, what is the energy performance compared to double glazing or triple glazing with air or vacuum yeah um the energy consumption of the space would drop uh about 45 to if it's fully glazed um the energy consumption of the space would drop between 45 uh uh sorry 55 and 75 if it's a double glass and between 45 to a 65 it's a triple glass window uh this would be in comparison with a standard industrial standard uh window so like a din 700 typical so that will be like a low e coating double glazed argon window so not a single plane or something because sure. um that would be not fair those are really bad <laughs> yeah i yeah, know so you, you're saying you're about equivalent to a good industry standard triple glaze no you're you're about 40 50 percent better than that again yeah, yeah um even the advanced windows like electrochromic smart glass we save more energy than those without any impact on, without any visual impact. You can actually, the space behind me, it was built in Taiwan. Solar grain is, gain is massively high. So 
if you look at buildings around there, it's complete standard to have black windows, black glass, because the sun is really strong, like yeah. you would see in buildings in Dubai. So we literally use clear glass on the building with zero shading to show them that the absorption works so well that you don't even need shading to keep the space cool. It works so well. So that's that's one of the strongest selling points. Like imagine like, I don't know, you have an office or restaurant with a view and you have to shade it for quite a big part of the year to avoid overheating. In our case, this problem doesn't exist. Cool. What if a window breaks? Just baseball, football, soccer? <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, um, we have a detailed technical solutions so that these buildings, the prototype buildings went through monitoring. So that's what partially the scientific grants were for. Um, we use offshore products. So, so for example, water monitoring system that monitors the pressure. If, if the pressure goes down even slightly in one of the windows, it gets isolated automatically with the valves. Um, so only you only lose the water that it's in that window. Um, so that's, uh, that's controllable. And then you can replace that window or repair it. Uh, um, and turn the system on again. You can also isolate the window. So if it takes time to repair, that's no problem either. It seems like a no-brainer and too good to be true. So where's the challenges? Um, the challenge is that uh, you'd have to, um, engineering community is uh, conservative and, and the people are trained, like myself, I'm an architect by training. Um, uh, one thing, one thing the engineers will always tell you that one thing that we always trained to to think of is is to keep water out of the building as much as possible um, because it's your enemy. So this is a mad idea. Um, so like um, even if the numbers are great, um, people respond. You know there is an unconscious bias, if you will, against against doing something like this. Um, so it's it can be it. Uh, we currently we have to focus on the innovators that are actually want to produce this product. So that's the challenge right now. But I think once those first projects are cleared, um, I'm hoping that the market will respond positively. But it is a no-brainer, especially for cities like New York, where you have the local low 97, because the tax gonna there's a carbon tax that's gonna kick in. Uh, I think it's 25, uh, and it will uh, quickly steep in 2030. Um, so either you, re and with tall buildings where you have floor height, at least four, four levels, four stories, and you have like 40% of your facade is glass, you can't really escape the tax or lower your energy consumption without doing something with your, win without doing something with your windows. Um, because you can't put enough solar panels on your roof uh, to, to make a difference and insulation with that percentage won't do much good for you. So, so you have to do something with the window. And what they do right now is to put scaffold around the whole buildings, take the existing window out, put a new one in. It's insane. Um, and in this case, you put something behind, and the job is done. So it's yes, it's 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 pretty much a no-brainer. So water freezes, especially in New York. How do you guys deal yeah. with that? Yeah, we got that question a lot, and it's perfectly valid. Uh, we have, again, an offshot monitoring system that works in multiple stages. Um, so these are these are the systems that actually were developed for sprinklers um, and also used in New York. So like, you know, the freezing in those systems are the same problem. Um, so we use the same system. We have the same warranties from those suppliers. Um, if the um, technically, uh, 
because we come with an external insulation. So for example, in New York, we would we would typically sell, uh, if it's a new build, we would sell a triple pane glass with an external insulation. So that protects the window. If it's a, if it's a retrofit, we keep the existing window and we put ours in as a double pane glass uh, and we have a small uh, vacuum in between. So we improve the U value, the insulation value, which again protects the window. So in a normal operation, because for example, in New York, even if the office is vacated, you don't go out uh, below a certain temperature um, uh, because you make sure that you know the pipes don't freeze and everything. And that's perfect for us as well. And if that system doesn't work for any reason, uh, then this alarm system kicks off, which case the, again, an off-shelf system that we have uh, that monitors the pipes, opens the system and the whole thing is going to the pipes and, and to the sewers. So we release the water because we don't use polluted water. We use clean water for our system. So we're not polluting the environment with this technology. So in that case, we could we could easily just remove it to the sewers, if that makes sense. And that's gravitating, it's physical process. So there is no... Uh, risk in you know getting not getting the water out and once that once things go back to normal we can fill fill up this we can come back and fill up the fill back the panels uh and it's usually uh for for a building it would it would be a one-day job what geographies can you actually operate in then where i mean you new york's probably freezing on like a several yeah. time a week basis at the very least. So is this just something where there's no insulation over the winter? It's a really good question. Um, so New York, for example, is really perfect for us because the operation um, does not necessarily come down just from temperature. It's also about solar gain and the amount of glass on the space. Um, so, um, so for example, New York is a really good place for us because during winter, they have a really high solar gain that we can capitalize on. Um, Technically, the technology, we build prototypes in different climates, but we ran, obviously we have, I didn't go into this, but because of the scientific grants that we won and the industrial grants that we won, we uh, published a lot of peer review publications on top of our panels to, to publish the results and the math and the science behind it. Um, and um, we have those on our website. Um, and uh, basically, we tested in, in all major inhabited climates the technology, um, and it works and performs well in all climates, except the only exception is severely cold climates. So that would be, sorry for the science, it would be Köppen-Geiger climate area E, which is high mountains, north area of Canada, and this kind of places where you would normally don't have cities. But in the rest of the world, it works. And it saves energy. And you mentioned about the pricing that is cheaper than conventional glass. Could you tell us a little bit more about your pricing strategy and how much it costs to produce? Absolutely. Um, so um, there are two. There are different prices for the new build and for the retrofit. Um, because we use different number of glass panes and there are different costs associated with the construction project. Uh, to put it very short and simple, uh, with the new build projects, um, we our price currently, our market price is similar to our competition, electrochromic glazing. Um, so um, our, uh, the reason why we can do that, obviously because we don't have high manufacturing costs that they, they have. Um, because we don't have expensive coatings. Um, so in that case, we, we keep our pricing level to their level. Uh, in case of the um, 
in case of the retrofits, um, our pricing uh, is actually cheaper than any other retrofit projects at the moment because we don't have the auxiliary cost. So we so scaffolding, removing the demolishment of the existing glass, uh, managing the waste, getting the paperwork and permits and so on comes to a large part of the auxiliary cost actually of, of a project like this, uh, especially for bigger buildings. Uh, it can go up to 30% and for us, that's a zero. Um, so we're only competing with the rest of their contract. So actually, even with our good profit margin, which we can discuss uh, in a one-to-one, -one, which is good. Um, it's it's better than glass, uh, normal glass manufacturers of on normal glass products because we developed the pricing quote with them. Uh, and obviously they wanted to be motivated. So they wanted to have a higher profit margin for this product than the others that they are selling. Um, and it's about double. Uh, and even with that, uh, we can sell the product on a lower price uh, than the, than our current competition because um, killing the auxiliary costs. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so you all are sort of past your R&D process. You're out in the market selling now and you have customers. Yeah, yeah we just started. Um, so um, we are at the beginning of our, of our selling phase. We have already some projects in the pipeline. Um, and these these are at the moment new build projects. So we are waiting. The projects has been started construction. But we are waiting for them to get to the point to put the window in, which is like usually for the eleventh hour of the project. But but yes, we are we are having already active projects that we are working on. Where? Uh, there is uh, one project in United States. It's um, residential development, um, and and then we have other projects uh, currently in in Hungary and Central East European area. So these are the places where we have did actively do um, some sales efforts for now. I think that mostly covers it for me, Alan, Stephanie. Yeah, that covers it for me as well. Sorry, I was on mute. Yeah, I'm good as well. Thanks for the presentation, Matthias. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, it may be helpful to uh, know a little bit about how it works with the mechanical systems and everything. That's what people often ask as well. Um, the the strategy of, for the whole thing is that we use off-shelf in everything that we can because we worked very closely with uh, facade builders, um, facade profile producers, um, glass manufacturers, construction companies. And of course, we spend a lot of time and a great deal to build on their feedback to make sure that they're comfortable because they are our licensed partners, right? So we wanna make sure that they wanna do this. Um, and, uh, and that because of that, really all the mechanical systems and everything that we do is off shelf. So for example, the piping we use, is the same type of pipes that you use in floor heating. So you get warranty on that. The water system filtering we use, the protectors from algae is a technology that's already invented. The, what we invented is, uh, which which protects us from being copied, um, is is the spacer system that we, we designed, um, our patents and, and the science behind it that we developed for, for a longer term. Um, so that's that was kind of something that gives us a convenient advantage, uh, but also it gives us 
puts us in a good position for collaboration. So when I call a glass factory to pitch uh, the technology for potential licensing, one of the first thing I immediately tell the person, like if you produced double glass or triple glass, or you're producing right now, you can do this. You don't need to buy a new machine. You don't need to buy a new factory. And that's where they really start to go into the conversation because glass factories are super expensive. So that actually gives us another important element that we are operating in the construction sector where our revenues are, uh, of the market is really big, of course. Um, but we also, we don't deal, because we are not project managers, we don't need to worry about the potential to grow. And because we, our product can be produced anywhere with existing glass factories, we have no limits to scale. Uh, we can scale very quickly. So we wanted to unite the best of both worlds. Uh, and we feel that we succeeded it and our license agreements proved this, which is great. And this is really important because if you think of our competition, for example, electrochromic glass, so Sage Glass is the oldest and it's a great product, but they're producing it in one factory for the whole world in the last, I think, five, seven years. Uh, because the, you need to reach a scale to build another glass factory and these factories are really expensive. We don't have that problem. So that gives us a really nice opportunity, I think, for the startup. I don't know, Piero, did I miss something? Sorry, I feel bad for you. You didn't get any chance <laughs> to say anything. No, I, th I think I hope you covered everything, Matthias. I mean, it is, I mean, I, I was the first investor in the business and it took me a while to wrap my head around it. I have to say the idea of putting water in glass and all the problems that you get from it jumped out to start with it. I just had to think about it for quite a bit more and look at the way these guys have spent years and years perfecting a product. So it's, it's unusual for me as an investor to get an opportunity to get in at this point where you've got developed technology, you've got patents, you've got some interesting projects in the pipeline and a technology that, that solves uh, issues, you know, in a way that uh, I don't think there's anything else quite out there that's doing that. I mean, for me, I bought a heat pump recently. It's probably, I equate it to kind of being a little bit like that, where there's a lot of fears about how the engineering is going to work. Does the technology work? I had it put in a year ago and I've had you know, zero problems. And I've, I've, to be honest, I forgot I had it done. Um, you know, but the, the, I think the hill to get over with this is kind of similar. You need to get the technology out there, get a few products done, get the right builders. And once it's out there and people see that it works, I, th I think extremely compelling in terms of you know the, the carbon savings, the cost savings you can make, and and, and the ability to scale. So um, that's why I kind of wanted to get on board this, and I, I you know, I'm, I'm pretty excited about what what the company can do. And I I really sympathize that it does sound a mad idea for our defense. Um, the we publish our science and its solutions in the best journals, academic journals in the world peer-reviewed journals and with the grants we work on for example the horizon 2020 grant that we did um it brings in we worked with glass glass factories that not only they didn't just grab the money to do something this is actually comes with levels of sales commitment for them so we went through a very thorough due diligence process with this crazy idea with them for example before they committed um and of course they wouldn't it wouldn't have been possible if uh, if um, if it wouldn't have made sense to them, and I wouldn't have done it otherwise because there's no point doing it if, if it's just a crazy idea. I hope mm -hmm. that makes sense. I'm, I'm sorry, I recognize that it doesn't have much to do with food, and I'm sorry about that. But um, 
I I think one element that may be interesting for you, Stephanie, is that we are working in additional products on the back of this. So currently we're focusing on the the retrofit uh, angle of, of it and the new build simply because the market is really massively changing in the coming years. I mentioned New York, but I could have mentioned UK for the Energy Act 2011, uh, where um, all um, all properties need to go to energy level B by 2030 in order to be permitted to let, which uh, affects 25% of all properties in the UK now, so they all need to be retrofitted by, by 2030. Uh, I could have mentioned the ETS, the energy trend, uh, uh, the energy emissions trading system of the European Union, uh, which will be extended to buildings by 25 or 26, uh, which is going to be a massive market for us. Uh, this is why we're doing it. But but actually, there is a, there are two other pro products that we want to go from here to agriculture as soon as possible, partially with this uh, investment round. One is and, and um, thanks thanks for sharing. I oh, uh, we need uh, we kind of went way over the five minute pitching. We went through oh, that a couple sorry. times. But I wanna I wanna move on to the next segment uh, or the last segment of the of the session. Thanks so much for presenting. And I would move things over to uh, our investor panelists now and make sure that we get mm -hmm. everyone out uh, to their to their kind of next. Uh, hopefully for some of you it's it's dinner. I know it's getting late here, but. Um, Alan, Stephanie, this is the last part of our segment now. So this is where we choose a, a startup of the night, the company or two companies that you were most excited about and why, why you'd, you'd want to set up a, another meeting with maybe invest in which companies do you see as the, as the most interesting in terms of uh, an investment case on a, on a climate side of things and why do you want to go first, Alan, Stephanie, volunteers or victims? I can go first. Um, you know, I would say WaveX, I think, you know, for me, it's definitely a technology that's unique and it seems really differentiated in the space. And there's just, you know, so many use cases for it from the coastline preservation to the energy generation. And so I feel like it has a lot of opportunity and a good team to really push that forward. Um, so I think I'll just leave it at one for now. Um, but I would say for the rest of you all, you did a great job in presenting your companies, the business models. Um, and just sort of, you know, what problems you're going after. All of the problems are in desperate need of being addressed. So thanks for the great work. Um, <clears throat> thanks. Thanks to you all. You all presented uh, re really well, really interesting. I'd love to connect with you uh, separately and give you some some maybe uh, thoughts, questions or, or introductions or, or, or next steps uh, for all of the businesses. I'll, I'll go with the picking too um, in in maybe my, my reserve um, just for the level of innovation, uh, I'll go WaveX as well, like Stephanie did. Um, I do know this sector uh, a little bit, and uh, I'd be concerned. And that I'd be concerned on the one hand on the development stage, but that's also why I'm interested to see new innovations and new uh, new projects trying to look at this space. Um, one of the key questions was the commercial piece uh, that Matt brought up about uh, you know will it compete with wind and solar? Um, and then the the winner for me. Um, there was a Matt made a comment and I made it offline in the chat. Essentially, if something sounds too good to be true, and then the, the guys demonstrate that it is uh, that good and is that well founded with data and engineering, and um, I think waterfall glass sounds just really interesting. Um, it's not a it maybe it's not an absolutely typical venture play. Um, in terms of you know technologies and SaaS and licensing and so on and so forth. Um, but as a technology and as a next step innovation, um. I think it's really interesting. I see a lot of architects bringing uh, forward projects like this. 
and uh, I'd like to hear hear more about Waterfall Glass. Congratulations to everybody. Yeah, congrats to everybody for pitching. It takes it takes guts to come on when there's lots of people watching, not just an investor or two. I would say on my side of things, there were. I mean, I thought we had a pretty good lineup overall. I liked Waterfield Glass. I liked uh, uh, Magia, uh, Magia, and uh, I liked Wave X as well. I would say just for the spirit of having a bit of a consensus, I guess that means we give it to Wave X because they got the they got the most votes, so to speak. But I, I think everybody here did a did a pretty solid job. How does that sound, Alan, Stephanie? Do we do we give a, a little bit of a wave to Wave X? I probably wouldn't put them as number one. I liked Megia a little bit high, higher, but either way, all the companies here I think have uh, have big potential. Absolutely. Yep, I'm 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 good with that. You're good with that. Very good. I'm good with that as well. Where is the best place for people to find you? What should they reach out with, Alan? How can you help? What's your What's your deal? Um, so we're you can contact us at Resolve Ventures. Uh, we are very focused on Ireland and uh, but very focused on on this sector. Um, so you'll find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Medium, Carrier Pigeon, uh, and everything else in between. But you'll find us at Resolve Ventures. And uh, thank you, Matt, uh, for the opportunity this evening. Absolutely, and Stephanie. Yeah, so same LinkedIn and also our website, e2jdj.com. We have a submission form that goes straight to our inboxes. And you folks can find us at forward.vc, the number forward.vc. Learn more about our partner in Crime Climate Accelerator, where we help companies just like this grow and scale and get serious customer traction because it's not about impressing investors. It's about building a real business and the investors come in droves. Forward.vc for more details and to apply for an upcoming session of the Startup Tank, the startuptank.com. Again, all of this is brought to you guys by Valbon by Carta, the company that we use to set up SPVs in our post-program companies and that we used previously when we were running the syndicate. Uh, to find out more about how you can set up an easy, fast, efficient, and compliant uh, special purpose vehicle to invest in companies or to raise funding for your company, or if you need to go set up um, ESOPs or anything else related to cap table management, et cetera, on the startup and venture side of things, uh, forward.vc slash Carta. That's C-A-R-T-A. Thanks to Valbon uh, by Carta for uh, for sponsoring the program, helping make this happen. And now it's time for all of you guys to go make it happen. Until next time, we'll be here. We're here every two weeks, the startuptank.com to apply. If you're watching on YouTube, subscribe. If you're on LinkedIn, subscribe. If you're on pretty much anywhere, you'll find us on one of the podcasting platforms to search for the Startup Tank or Matt Ward. And yeah, cheers, folks. We're on, a, we're on Team Planet. Let's go do it.